All right, good morning, City Light. How are we doing? Good morning. Woo woo. What's up? Um, excited to be here with y'all this morning. Last week we celebrated two years, uh, which is God's gift to us. We we're so thankful. And everybody was so celebratory. I told our team, we're going to start celebrating every date. So this is two years in one week. And uh, yeah, the Lord has given us to you. Woo, woo, woo. I just kept thinking, okay, it's good to celebrate. But we're celebrating Jesus, not City Light, which we should do every week. So uh, the Lord has given us two years in one week. And we're super excited about that. Praise the Lord. Uh, I hope you come today with a celebratory spirit, uh, thankful for everything God has done, not only in this church, but in your life. Um, you probably noticed these nets are still up at the top. You know, we, last week we used those to dump balloons on your head. Uh, we're not going to do that again. We got several, we, we met a lot of new people last week and we kept telling them, it's not like this every week, right? So just so you're clear, it's not confetti shooting every time. Uh, maybe there should be, I don't know. But uh, we left the nets up for now um, so that every time you look up, you remember to be a fisher of men, okay? This is what the Lord wants to remind you of. It was more of an accident, but I'm spiritualizing it right now so that you have something for it, okay? Uh, and so look up, think, oh, okay, I'm supposed to fish for men, all right? And we put some people in that net, uh, and we'll see if it comes down this week. Now, we're going to be starting a series in Ecclesiastes. Before we jump into that, uh, if you're new or haven't filled out a Connect card yet, please, there's one on your seat. Uh, please go ahead and do that. We'd love to connect with you and help you get plugged in to what's going on here at City Light, answer any questions you may have. So if you take that and you give it to us at the back or over here on your way out, uh, we'll be happy to give you a black box. And in the box, there's a bunch of secret things. So uh, go ahead and give us that so you can find out the secret to City Light. We'd love for you to do that. This Saturday, something very important is happening. It's called Immerse. Uh, we do this three times a year to start each season, not, uh, not weather seasons, but our church seasons, which happen three different times a year. Uh, and so we dedicate this next coming few months to Jesus in prayer and fasting. So from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. in this space, we will pray, we will sing, we will read the scriptures, we will fast, and we will pursue the Lord. So any time you are able to be a part of that, please come join us. We will all eat together at 6 uh, six to seven, and then seven to nine, there'll be a worship night to close our time together. But it's just a way for us to dedicate ourselves unto the Lord, uh, as we talked about in the very beginning of the year, to consecrate ourselves unto him, to be ready in heart and in spirit for the things the Lord wants to do. He is way more concerned about the condition of our hearts as means by which he wants to use our lives than he is about the condition of our skill sets or our resources. And so we want to get our hearts ready so that the Lord can work in them and through them. So please join us in person or online anytime time from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. this Saturday. We're going to dedicate ourselves unto the Lord. Uh, also, tomorrow we have our food deliveries, which happen once a month. And so if you want to come help us pack at 2 o'clock, you can do that. If you want to come anytime after 2, you can help us deliver them. And so if you haven't gotten plugged into that yet, uh, we do that usually through our lighthouses. But if you're not in a lighthouse, this is a great way for you to serve our community. And so we'd love to give you some families so that you can deliver food to them. And so if you show up tomorrow, we'll be able to do that with you. Another exciting announcement, a few, a few of these, are, they're really important. That's why I'm saying them right now. Uh, I want to make sure that you understand. Next Sunday, uh, we're starting a middle school Bible study at 11 o'clock, all right? So during service, we're going to minister to our middle schoolers and help them know the Lord. That's going to start next Sunday. So for all of you parents of middle schoolers, every Sunday at 11 o'clock, we're going to lead a middle school Bible study, and we would love for you to participate in that. You can get more information from Valerie uh, Erickson. She'd be happy to help you in on that. Finally, 
Hey, we've been talking about this for weeks, okay? We have rugs after the service, okay? They're in the fellowship hall. I told you to come buy a rug, all right? There's not a ton of them. There's a few stockings and there's a few other like mugs and things, okay? Don't worry about the rug or anything like that. Just imagine you're giving money directly to a, a vulnerable Afghan woman right now, okay? So that's how I want you to view this, all right? And so go uh, bless the people and uh, without all that money, 100% of it goes directly to serve uh, those families that are running that business for missions to help provide for the families there that are still in Afghanistan and facing the current struggles that they are facing. So after each service, please go get a rug uh, and do that with us. That would be great. So today, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is where we're going to start. We're doing a new seven-week series through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in the Old Testament. If you open your Bible to the middle and just flip over a couple pages, you're going to find it, all right? Uh, you can also look in the beginning of your Bible. They'll, they'll give you a, a, some list of books. Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, and we're going to get an interesting perspective about life from this book. What I'm going to do today is actually start at the end of the book to give us perspective on the rest of the book to help us have the end in mind end in mind every time we learn something different that the author wants to teach us and most importantly that God wants to teach us. This is how we're going to work through the book, but really this is how you should live your life to always have the end in mind. Understanding what will happen then is very important for you to know how to live now. And so many of you, we all know this in practical experience, how often have we said, if I knew then what I know now, how different would things be? That big decision that you regret, that investment that you made that went sideways, the fact that you didn't get into Bitcoin until now and it's already expensive, you should have done it two years ago. You know, you're like, if I knew then what I knew now, things would be totally, totally different. And that's exactly what I'm after today, and that's exactly what God is after, is for you and I to live with then in mind, the end, so that we can know now the way we ought to live our life. The benefit of having the Bible is that you do not have to guess what then is like. You do not have to guess what comes at the end. You do not have to guess what you ought to expect and what standard by which you will be judged. These things you do not have to guess at. You actually know then what you need to know now, and you know it ahead of time. And we ought to live our entire, entire life with the end in mind. I want us to avoid being like those people who get tattoos made before their team wins the championship as an act of faith. To say, I believe, I believe. Y'all seen this? If you Google it, I almost decided to put some pictures on the screen, but there's a million. All you got to do is Google it, all right? Uh, people who get tattoos, like, you know, we're going to win the championship, but they get it ahead of time, and then their team doesn't win the championship. And so now they have a huge tattoo on their leg with the date and the team that lost the championship, you know? Or you guys know for every championship game, there's two sets of shirts made for each team because they don't know who's going to win. And so now you have a whole set of shirts that you made and spent money on that you're just going to get rid of and throw away or send away. If only they knew ahead of time which team would win the game, they could only print the shirts for the right team. If only you knew ahead of time that your team wasn't going to win the championship, you could avoid that foolish tattoo. One of the funny ones I saw uh, was the actor Johnny Depp. 
Uh, I guess it was his girlfriend and wife. I don't really know, but I just saw this on Google, okay? Uh, he was married to Winona, and they got divorced, or they broke up, and he changed his tattoo from Winona forever to Wino forever. He just took, he took the little piece off, and he just changed it. And I'm just like, okay, that's ridiculous. You know, if only you knew then what you know now, you could have made a better decision, could have made a better decision. And that's how I want us to understand the book of Ecclesiastes and really what God is trying to teach us throughout the whole Bible is to let us in on what we can expect then so that we can go ahead and make proper decisions now about how we should live our life. So let's start at the end of the book and let's look at chapter 12 as we consider these things together. Chapter 12, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. So I want you to, as I'm reading this, this is metaphorical language for when your body gets old and begins to shut down, okay? In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, so that's your legs, and the strong men are bent, okay? So the keepers of your house, right, they begin to tremble. It's harder for you to walk and move forward. The grinders cease because they are few, that's your teeth, Those who look through the windows are dimmed. Obviously, your eyes and your eyesight begins to blur. But he's basically giving metaphorical language for what happens as you grow older and your body begins to break down. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. When one rises up, you wake up quickly at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. You lose your zeal for life because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. So he's giving us a picture of life coming to close. And then this is the close. Before the silver cord is snapped. These are pictures of what does it look like for life to be gone in an instant. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel is broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. This is all vanity. Now, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end." Of making many podcasts, there is no end. Of making many YouTube channels, there is no end. Boy, do we know this. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon comes to this very dramatic conclusion that the only thing that matters is that we live to fear God. Now, as I said before, Ecclesiastes is written, this this guy called the preacher is Solomon, who was King David's son. He also wrote Song of Solomon and many of the Proverbs that you read in the Bible. He was, by and large, the most successful king in the history of the world in terms of the prosperity of his people and the peace that they had during his reign. He was also the wisest man on the planet by a gift of God, literally the wisest man on the planet. 
because God made him so. Therefore, he is the perfect candidate to explore the meaning of life. He has all the power and all the pleasure at his fingertips. He has all the wisdom and the smarts to know what to do. If anyone can explore the value and the meaning of life, it's him. Now, we're going to see even more clearly next week in chapters 1 and 2 the kinds of things he explored. So I'm not going to get into all of that now, but you just must understand, as he comes to this conclusion at the end of the book, he has had all power and all pleasure given to him and all wisdom and smarts. So imagine the richest, smartest, most powerful person on the planet is one person. And that person has no accountability and can do whatever they want. That's who we're talking about here. He explored and tested whatever he wanted, which you and I will never even come close to being able to do. And so he, he looks back on all of this. He looks back on his whole life now, on every pleasure, every power, everything he's been able to accomplish, everything he's been able to build, every pleasure he's been able to fulfill, everything that he's done in life. He looks back over the whole thing, and as he begins to grow old, and as he begins to get near the end of his life, he begins to reflect, and he says, all of that, everything the world had to offer me, meaningless. The only thing that matters at the end of the day is that I fear God. This is his conclusion at the end of the book, is to look at the entire world and say, everything I experienced in that world, meaningless. The only thing that I now understand really matters is that I fear God and that I fear God by keeping his commandments. So this is his conclusion at the end of his life. And we ought to listen very hard to what he has to say. So what does it mean to fear God? Today we're talking about how we find meaning by fearing God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, the first thing he says here in the Bible itself is you fear God by keeping his commandments. And he goes on to say, hey, this is the whole duty of man. It's like your entire responsibility, your entire existence as a human being is for this one thing, that you would live unto God, that you would fear him, that you would be in awe and reverence and respect and worship God, this is your entire life. This is the only fixed point of your existence is that you live as one under God. You live as one that has to give an account to God. Because here's what he says. He says, you fear God by keeping his commandments. This is the whole point of your life. And at the end of that, he gives you a reason why. You may say, well, that seems extreme. Why is the whole point of my life one thing? Just God. Nothing else matters. That seems a little bit much. But you see what he says at the end of it? Why, why do I live this way? I'm going to know then what I need to know now. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So look, he's at the end, and he's saying, hey, look, my whole body's breaking down. Even my ability to experience the things I used to experience isn't even the same. My desires aren't the same. My physical capacities aren't the same. It's not the same. And so all that I experienced is gone. It's like a mist, and it's gone. And now I'm in this position, and I'm looking back, and I'm thinking through, okay, not only am I looking back and saying, well, that's all meaningless. What did it get me now? Now I'm looking forward and saying, my body's about to completely break down, and the end of my life is to stand before God and be held accountable and judged for everything I ever did. This is his perspective that he is giving to us. And it's very, very sobering and very helpful for us to say, why does this matter that I live unto the fear of God? It is because God is the one who will judge your life. 
Why would you fear people? Why would you fear anything else? God is the one who will bring every deed, every thought, every word into judgment. And according with that judgment, you will live forever, either separated from God in a place called hell, or you will join God in a place called heaven. And your whole life is leading unto this moment. We find meaning when we fear God. Solomon is teaching us now what we already need to know then. So here's what we begin to understand, is that the meaning of anything is found in its relation to God and its connection to eternity. So if I'm going to find meaning in life, if I'm going to find meaning, I only have one place to go. How does this thing, this word, this work, this feeling, how does it relate to God? And if I act upon it, what does that do for eternity? That's the essence of something that has meaning. If I want to know whether something has meaning, I don't ask whether it makes me feel good now. I don't ask whether it makes me feel like a certain person now. I don't ask whether it gives me power, status, and influence now. I ask, how is this related to God? What does God think about it? And if I live this way, what does that mean for my eternity? This is how you find meaning in life, and this is no exaggeration, like we sang in the song, nothing else matters. It does not matter how famous you are, how much money you make, how good you look, how much you love or don't love your job, how much influence you have or don't have, how many followers on social media you have, what kind of lifestyle you can achieve, how many pleasures can you fulfill, how many experiences can you get, how many bucket list items can you knock off. None of those things matter literally at all. The only way to access meaning in life is to find out how does this relate to God and what is this doing for my attention. Eternity. And that's what he begins to teach us. And I'm telling you, I've, I've been listening to this book on streetlights, which is a people who basically like read slash rap the Bible to beats, okay? So it's just the Bible. They're not making up stuff. It's just the Bible. But they kind of rap it and they put a beat behind it, okay? And it's easy for me to listen to. So part of what I do before we work through a book, because we know this ahead of time, is I take a few weeks and everything I do in the car, in my ears, when I go for a run, it's just this. It's just always in my head. So it's just Ecclesiastes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, over and over again uh, for several weeks. And as I was doing this and listening to him say these things over and over again, it was honestly super depressing. Super depressing. And I'm a very positive person, okay? Ask anybody that knows me. I'm always very positive about life. And this was very depressing because every corner, everything, he's like, and in all the years of your meaningless life, and all this is vanity, and all this, it doesn't mean anything. What's the point of all of this? And he says random things like, if you build a house, a snake could bite you. All these different things. You're like, oh my goodness, like what? This is very, very depressing. And I think that's the point. We need to feel the weight of the fact that it literally, doesn't matter apart from him. Why is our world so depressed? Because we don't live in light of him. There is no meaning apart from God. There is no pleasure apart from God. There is no purpose apart from God. There is no real joy apart from God. There is no peace apart from God. And ultimately, there is no salvation apart from God. And if you live your life apart from God, of course you will be utterly depressed. And for many of you who call yourselves Christians, but you're living your life as if you don't believe that, as if you're not living before God and everything, then you're also struggling with these things because that is exactly the case. It is depressing to think about life and to deal with life apart from its relationship to God. 
And this is why the gospel is such good news because people need to know that God loves them and that there's meaning in their existence and that everything can change based off who God is. But I want you to sense, and Solomon wants you to sense, the weight of that depressive feeling to say, literally, no exaggeration, nothing matters. What's the point of being successful at my job? For what? What's the point of experiencing this physical pleasure? It's gone. For what? What's the point? And you and I, we've all struggled with that and we've all felt that way. And he's getting at that part in our heart and he's saying, you gotta deal with that right now. You can't keep overlooking it. I know you feel that way. What's the point? What's the point? And as we go throughout the Ecclesiastes, he's gonna give us so many examples. Like what's the point of having all this money you worked for? To do what? To be secure by 50 and to die at 60? What's the point of that? All your work will get passed on to people and you don't know what, you're, what they're gonna do with the money that you worked for. What's the point? And that's Ecclesiastes the whole way. What's the point? You'll live and you'll die. What's the point? And you ought to feel that. And this is what he wants us to understand. So, so here's where we're gonna begin to dive into the, the details of how this plays out. Here's something for you to write down. Is an experience comes and goes quickly, but the effect of that experience is eternal. This is very important, super important. I want you to write it down. I want you to think about it. An experience comes and goes quickly. Whether it's being successful about something, winning the championship, even being hurt, whether it's whatever it is, some physical pleasure, eating that thing, you know, an experience, it comes and goes quickly. But the effect of that experience, the effect of that action is eternal. This is how you have to begin to think through all of the things in your life. An experience may come and go quickly, but the effect of that experience is eternal. A decision may come and go quickly, but the effect of that decision is eternal. And this is what he wants you to begin to understand, that the consequence or the reward for that experience is eternal. So imagine like everything you do is throwing a rock in the, in the water and the rock ripples out. And so my experience may be one moment hitting the water, but it begins to ripple out and have an effect later. This is very important for us to understand the meaning attached to everything in your life. Now, Thinking about the experience, but not the effect of the experience, is the trap that the devil gets us all into. We focus on the experience, but we ignore the consequence. What is the main thing you have to do with children is teach them this thing called cause and effect. And that if you do something, there are rewards and consequences for those things. There is an effect based off the things that you do. But what the devil wants us to do, and what's happening is he's blinding our eyes to the effect of the experiences that we're having. And if we think about the experience but not the effect, it's like thinking only about the freedom of jumping out of a plane, but not the effect of what happens when you hit the ground. You're like, I want to be free, baby. Woo! You know? You're like, this feels so good. And this is what you're doing. Like, oh, I'm just experiencing everything, every pleasure I ever wanted to do. Oh, God says you can't do this? Man, that's stupid. Woo! You know, you're just flying around like, this feels good. And the devil's like, yeah, 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 yeah. That feels real good, real good, real good, real good. Yeah, keep living that way, keep living that way. Don't worry about it. And then you, bam, you know. And then you stand before God. And what the devil's goal to do is to help you, to not help you, it's to, to trick you into thinking only about the experience but not the effect. To want the freedom of jumping out of the plane without planning ahead for, to be prepared to hit the ground. That's how many of you are living your life. 
So here's, here's something I want you to understand. I'm going to give you this little story, okay? So I asked my wife if I could borrow the spray bottle. She said yes, all right? So this is what she uses for our kids' hair. So I don't know how their hair looks this morning, but I borrowed it, so it's my fault. Okay. So look, you guys know how spray bottles work. This, this is the point of the whole thing of Ecclesiastes, right? It's like this is your life. Oh, yeah, we won the championship. Woo! Oh. What was the point of all that hard work? Oh, yeah, I finally got that girlfriend. Woo! Woo! Maybe even a little extra. Woo! You know? <laughs> and then it's like, oh. Man, where's that? I can't even get that back. You know? It's like trying to think of a good memory, and you're like trying to get these things back. I finally got to the top, man. I'm the most successful person in my field. This is what he's saying, you know. Man, I finally did what I was dreaming of. I got the mountaintop. For what? This is the feeling and the idea that he wants us to get. And other scriptures confirm this, that your life is like a mist. It's like a vapor. It just goes. And so are your accomplishments and so are your pains. But here's what I want you to understand. Okay, this is, when, this is the depressing part. When you realize I spent all that time doing that, and uh, yeah, that felt good for a minute. You know, it's like this. It's like, okay, this feels good for a minute. And then it's gone. I spent all that time trying to refresh myself by doing these different things. And it felt good for a minute, but then it's gone. And that success or that achievement or that whatever, it feels good for a minute, but then it's gone. And I don't have it anymore. And I can't even grab it to bring it back. I can't even experience that again. And so that's depressing. What's the point? Everything in life feels so meaningless. But here's what, here's what he wants us to understand is that what feels meaningless to you an experience that comes and goes quickly has an eternal effect. Because why? What's God's perspective? To you, that decision to do something God told you not to do, but you thought it felt good to you. To you, this is what you get out of it. You get a little missed, and then it's gone. And now you feel guilty. But to God, you go in here, and he holds it. And everything you did that vanished away to you is remembered by God. So it feels so pointless to you. And it makes you depressed because this is what it felt like to you. But God knows everything that you've ever done. What does he say? That he will bring every deed into judgment, whether secret or not. There's no such thing as secret with God. And so what do you get out of it? Something quick and something pointless. And then you look back on it and you're trying to get it back. But what happens on the eternal side? Right here. Everything in your life, God is just catching He's remembering, he's holding. And everything that you think might have vanished into thin air, oh, I did that 20 years ago. Everything that you think might just be gone is now being caught and caught and caught and accumulated. And what happens is you live your whole life with all these experiences, they come and go very quickly. You look back on it and it's very depressing. And then you stand before God and every experience you ever had, he remembers and he holds you to it. So what did you get out of it? This is the point. I, I hope that you just see how pointless it is to live for the world. And so those are two ways. So the first thing that happens with your experiences is they're caught by God. They're remembered. And every word, thought, and action is remembered and held into judgment. He holds it. It doesn't go away. The experience for you goes away. So all you get out of that is just a quick shot of pleasure or a quick shot of success or a quick shot of enjoyment. And then an eternity's worth of judgment. That's insanity. Who would make that trade? Oh, give me a little shot of pleasure and enjoyment, and I'll trade that for an eternity's worth of judgment. 
And then I'll look back even on that, and I'll be depressed about it. So it'll kill me now because I'll look on my meaningless life and say, what was the point of all these experiences? And it'll kill me later because God will judge me for everything that I've done. What's the point? Now, here's another way to live your life. God remembers. Now, once again, you just do this, and you're just spraying, you're living for yourself, and you're just trying to, and it all eventually goes away. Or you could point your life and your experiences in another direction and begin to water something that you're going to see bear fruit. You see what I'm saying? If I point my experiences to me, what can Nate Crew get out of this? Then it's like this, and it's like, oh, that was nice for a minute, and then it's gone. And God holds it, and he holds me to judgment for it. Or I can point my experiences to something else, the seed of the gospel, the seed of a holy life, what God has planted in me. This is what he means by store up treasures in heaven. Is now I'm taking my experiences, my choices, my words, my actions, and I'm aiming them at something because I know that if I aim them at the seed of the gospel, if I use my experiences to invest in the kingdom of God, that now they're not just vanishing off into thin air, they're creating good soil to bear fruit in my life. Do you see this? Please, you see this. So every day, okay, your experiences come and go quickly, but their effect is eternal. God remembers everything that you've ever done, and he holds you to it. And you have two choices to live by. You can either shoot your experiences at yourself, experience just a little bit for that, and get judged by it, and it'll all be gone. Or you can shoot your experiences at something kingdom, something eternal. And every miss that feels so pointless and vain sometimes is actually going into the ground of the seed of the gospel and is allowing it to bear fruit. This is what it means to live a meaningful life. It's to say, I know that for everything I choose, this is happening, and I will have to stand before God and give an account for what I did. And so therefore, I live in the fear of him. And I know that the only real investment is the one in God's kingdom that matters. I want to store up treasures in heaven. I want all of my, direct, my decisions and actions and feelings and experiences to be aimed at something so that as I spend my life, it's not wasted away just throwing out into the wind on this relationship and that job and that thing for me and this car for me and this thing for me, this experience for me and all this stuff just for me, for me, for me, for me, for me. And it goes away as opposed to saying, I've been given this little seed of the gospel. I've been given this life and heaven is very long and I'm gonna take everything that I can and I'm gonna start aiming it at this seed so that my life will bear fruit and so that I'll see from experiences that I had now, I'll see the fruit of them forever in heaven. This is what it means to live a meaningful life. Now, this is very important. This is why the Proverbs say in verse 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Oh, the Proverbs are so wonderful. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And here's what we learn. Fearing God is the beginning of living a right life, not the end of living a right life. I don't get wisdom, so I fear God. I fear God, so then I have wisdom for life. So the fear of God is the beginning. But so many of you are searching for wisdom, self-help. How should I live my life? How do I parent my children? How do I be successful? How do I make sure my life goes well? How do I live in good health? All of these things I'm doing, and you're pursuing wisdom so that you can live your life right, but you haven't pursued the fear of the Lord, and you can't even start to be wise until you learn to fear God. It's the beginning, not the end. 
And so many of you are searching, you're searching, you're searching, and you're reading all the books, and you're listening to all the podcasts, and you're trying to do all the things, but you haven't even started the race yet. You are living with no wisdom whatsoever because you haven't chose to submit to and to fear God and to live as under him and before him every day. This is so serious, guys. I know it might feel heavy and weighty, but this is so serious. This is the whole point of your existence. So this is what the Lord is teaching us. What does it look like to fear God? He tells us right from the beginning, obedience. So obedience to God is the primary sign of whether I fear God or not. It's not a feeling. It's not whether I come in here and worship. It's obedience. Do I live my life as if I'm always before him? This is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Consider this. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, not let, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And so we get this sense now that to fear God is to be very careful with my approach to him. It's to not mess around with God. It's to not trivialize who he is. It's to not ignore his judgment. To fear God is to do way more listening than speaking. Just ask yourself, who talks more when I'm with God? Look what he says, let your words be few. You are this little person on earth and he reigns in heaven. How are you approaching him? To fear God is to live in light of the reality that nothing is secret. Even the vows that I make, God holds me to them. Everything I listen to is before God. Everything I think is before God. Everything I look at is before God. Everything I love and the condition of my heart is before God. I have an audience always. And it's to live with that realization. So now it's obedience, right? I always have God as my audience, so I choose my words based off the fact that God hears them. I choose my approach to God based off how he's revealed who he is. I make promises based off what I know about God's accountability. I consider my way of life based off what God loves and hates. I handle my money based off what God wants me to invest it in. I guard my eyes, what my eyes see, based off what I know God cares about. I guard what my ears hear based off what I know God loves to say. I lead my family based off what I know that God cares about my family. I treat the poor based off what I know God thinks about them. I sort through my thoughts and pick the appropriate ones and cast down the rest based off the thoughts that I know that please God. Everything I do is unto him. I behave at work based off what I know about God. I deal with my feelings based off what I know about God. I decide to express something or not express something based off what I know about God. I make a decision about how I live every single day based off what I know about God. When I'm tempted to sin, I run and I flee based off what I know about God. I live my whole life as if there is nothing secret and he is always my audience. I live in obedience and I fear him. This is what it means to fear 
God is to live in obedience. Let me follow this up with several scriptures. We learn to fear God is simply to follow his commands. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So this is the posture. To fear God is to be in awe of him. He is in heaven. I am on earth. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Right? So to fear God is to hate what is evil, particularly being proud and arrogant and having evil speech. I hate, you say, I, if I fear God, I have to hate those things. Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. So to fear God is to follow his commands, to turn away from the things that he hates. Job 28, 28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. What does that mean? To walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And this is all true ultimately because of Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Here's my question. Do you fear God? Like, for real, for real, for real. Look at your life. Do you fear God? Is your life lived in such a way as evidence of the fact that you fear God, that you walk in his ways, that you hate what is evil? Do you fear God? Do you fear judgment? Do you fear these things? Do you fear the one who can throw your soul and body in hell? Or do you fear men and your boss more? Do you fear your reputation and what people think about you more than you fear what God thinks about you? To fear God is to follow his commands. Now, here's the flip side. This is the positive side. To fear God is to find favor with God. So when I fear God, I find favor. Look at all this. Psalm 147, 11. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. You got to see these things. What may feel heavy at first, that God sees everything you do and is going to hold you into judgment, is going to start to find some, some light and some help when you do it the right way. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Luke 1, 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. How do I get the mercy of God? Fear God. And I want God's mercy. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. How do I become satisfied? It's to fear God. Proverbs 20, 25, 14, get this. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. How do I become a friend of God? It's to fear God. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And his children will have a refuge. Psalm 34, 9. Oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The fear of the Lord is to find favor with God. So what does it mean to fear God? It means to keep his commandments. What does it mean to fear God? It means to find favor with God. Now, here's, here's the closing thing today. As I began to ponder these things, because I'm just reading the text and trying to understand and then trying to navigate what does the fear of, of the Lord mean, I often go on runs for health, but also just to clear my mind. And sometimes the Lord really clarifies things for me. And I was, I, was, I was going for a run, and I had finished the run, and I was walking back. And that's usually when I pray, 
And I just ask the Lord, like, you know, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? I try to do that. You talk to me. You know, I'm not, I don't want to bring too many words to you. And I was thinking about this and like, what does it mean to fear you? And uh, do I fear you? And am I living this way? What do, what do our people need to understand about the fear of God? There's so much. I, I want our people to feel the heaviness of it, but also know there's a way that is lifted up. There should be both, both uh, uh, conviction and encouragement, and that's what I want. So I don't want the fear of the Lord just to lay heavy on everyone to be like, oh, man. But I want, I want there to be a heaviness and a relief. And as I began to pray through this, I immediately thought of John 14, where Jesus himself says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it's very significant for me. In John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So look, how did you define the fear of the Lord in Ecclesiastes? By keeping the word of God, by following his commands. How did Jesus define following his commands? By love, not fear. Jesus chose love to describe a person who follows my commands. So what's happening? Is it fear? Is it love? Is it both? Why, why, why is Jesus' emphasis on obedience, love, not fear? Am I, am I supposed to be afraid? Isn't the fear is the thing that leads me into obedience? Why doesn't Jesus include that? Which he certainly does. He's the one who said, Matthew 10, 28, you ought to fear God. He could throw both your body and your soul in hell. But when you come down to what is the motivation for keeping my commandments, Jesus brings it all down to one word, love. Now, the guy who wrote the book of John is also the guy who wrote 1 John, surprise. And this is what he says, and this is the path. Okay, the Lord was just, you know, opening the floodgates, and I was like, okay, this is helpful. Uh, 1 John 4, 16 through 19, this is what he says. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, for the end, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Here's the verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So what is fear supposed to do? It is supposed to rightly make you afraid of the punishment of God, the judgment of God, where you realize my little experiences and decisions have eternal consequences. God is holy. I am sinful. And everything I do is accumulating before him. And I have to give an account before that. And therefore, I ought to fear the day of judgment because on the day of judgment comes my punishment. But the solution for my punishment is love, namely the love that God has for us. So am I supposed to fear God or am I supposed to love God? What does this look, at? What does this look, at? What does this look like for us? And here it is. Here's the sentence for us to understand these two things together. This is very important. Fear is completed in love. Fear without love is painful, and love without fear is superficial. 
Okay, so, so he, he was doing, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then John, the same writer, says, hey, 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 there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Not just like random fear, it's the fear of judgment, the fear you're supposed to have. For fear has to do with punishment. So here's what happens. We fear God, rightly, even now, for some of you for the first time, and we recognize the difference between him and us. This is the first step to fearing God. You are in heaven, I am on earth. You are not me. I am not you, and you will judge me, I will not judge you. Now, because of this, we are afraid of God's judgment, and so we rightly fear the day of punishment, and it should make us tremble to think I'm going to stand before a holy God with all my sin and imperfections. What am I going to do in that moment? I don't even know how I'm going to make it, and you won't, apart from this. We rightly fear God. We are afraid of the punishment and judgment of God, but because of this fear, when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in, it is received happily as the best news ever. You see how this works? Maybe you don't appreciate the gospel because you haven't yet learned to fear God. Just thank you for grace. I'm gonna come and lift my hands, but you were never afraid of judgment. No one ever taught you that your sins will be held accountable before God. He has every right to send you into hell forever. This is true. And until you understand that, receiving the gospel is like us, oh, like nice cool. But when you begin to understand that I deserve separation from God forever in a place called hell and everything I've done is being held accountable to him and I ought to fear him. And then the good news of the gospel comes in that says you ought to fear God, but you know what? God loves you. And Jesus has taken the judgment that you're afraid of for you. And because Jesus has taken your punishment, now you can have confidence. Because when you face God, you don't bring your sins to the table. Jesus has paid for them on the cross. You bring the righteousness of Jesus to the table, and God looks at you as he sees Jesus, not as he sees you. And on the very day that you're supposed to be the most afraid of is the very thing you can have the most confidence for because the judgment and the punishment that you deserved has fallen completely on Jesus. He took all of it for you so that you could abide in his love for you. You see how this works? So fear starts the journey towards God. You can't move towards God apart from fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what completes the journey? Love. So fear starts it and love completes it. And now instead of abiding in fear, I abide in love. And it's a love that appropriately fears and respects God. I don't take him lightly or trivially. I don't take my sins lightly. But I love him and I know he loves me. And that love that God has for me has cast out all fear. Because if the fear of the judgment of God has been taken away from my life, how could I pull in the fear of people's opinion? You see what I'm saying? If the fear of the judgment of God, the greatest thing for me to ever be afraid of, has been kicked out by the love of Jesus on the cross, if that has happened for me, and on the day when I'm supposed to be most afraid, I can have the most confidence, then how could it be that the fear of man's opinion, or the fear of that diagnosis, or the fear of any of those things that make me afraid, how could those things sway me now? Because Jesus in his love has taken away my greatest fear. How much more is it true that he'll deal with my lesser fears? This is the good news of the gospel. It's good news. It is such good news. It is such good news that you deserve punishment, but Jesus has taken your punishment for you. On the day you should be most afraid, you can be the most confident. 
not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Now, as we close, here's a word to two different people in the room. Some of you are here, and you do not actually fear God at all. I'm glad that you're here, and this is a, a, a pastoral encouragement to you, but I hope the Lord exposes your heart. You have no respect for who God is. You have no respect or even understanding of his holiness. You are not concerned one bit about the day of judgment. You prefer to live however you want to live now. You want to be the boss of your own life. And I want to tell you today, this is the path to death, and you ought to be rightly afraid. You ought to be afraid, not just respect and awe, fear. You should tremble that one day you will stand before a holy God as a sinful man, and everything that you've done, said, and thought will be held to account. This is true of your life. And I beg you to stop messing around with and trivializing God. You will stand before him. And if you don't fear him now, it will be too late then. And you'll say, if only I knew then what I know now. But it will be too late. I don't want that for you. Which is why the good news of the gospel has come your way this morning. Though you have dismissed God, rebelled against God, ignored God. Though you have not lived the way that he wants you to live. Though you have decided to be the boss and the Lord of your own life. Though you have just shifted him, just pushed him away. Though you have completely, completely rebelled against God. God still loves and desires a relationship with you. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for all of your sins. To be raised from the dead so that if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. And on the day you should be most afraid, you can have the most confidence. And the Lord wants to give you that today. Would you receive the free gift of eternal life in the life of Jesus Christ? And some of you are here and you fear God. This is to my, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. My heart is very burdened for you. I have these experiences myself. You fear God, but you're not living in his love. Fear has not been completed in love. Maybe it has in fact, but not in your experience. You are burdened by your sin. You can't forget your past. You live constantly in a state of regret. You feel like God is just waiting for you to mess up again. Like he's just the rule guy. And every time you mess up, you slap on the wrist. I can't believe you would do that again after I died for you. How would you keep doing that? And you have a right understanding to fear God, but you're not living in his love. And now you feel like so many bad things in your life are attached to your sin, as if God is always punishing you for everything that you do, because you're such a mess up as if those terrible decisions from years ago are still biting you in the back today, as if God's grace and mercy isn't sufficient to cover these things in your life, as if God has it out for you, and although you know by fact that he saved you, you feel like he's still mad at you. So you come to church, and you think maybe this will make God happy you. Go serve, you come out, you do food deliveries tomorrow. Maybe this will make God happy. You tithe, maybe this will make God happy. You, you try your hardest, maybe this will make God happy. 
and you live in a constant state of, is God happy with me or not? Am I doing enough or not? And that's your version of Christianity. So many of you, I talk to you guys all the time, so many of you, and I know it myself. Because we rightly understand God's holiness, but what we haven't done is rightly understand God's love. So I want you to hear me this morning. That because of Jesus Christ, because of his perfect life, because of his death on a cross, because of his resurrection over the grave, and because of your response of faith and repentance in him, God is your father. He's your father. And all you get now is love. Do you hear me? All you get now is love. Now, as a good father, love comes with discipline. Hebrews 12, God disciplines those he loves, but it's to make you more like Jesus. It's not punishment, it's discipline. Do you understand me? If what Jesus did was sufficient to take care of all your sins, on the day of judgment, then do you really think every day God is trying to find things to judge you for? That God is looking to be upset with you? That God just can't believe that you would do that again? That he's done with you? That he's tired of your foolishness? No, 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 no. No, no. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. So I want you to know this this morning, and this has been my pastoral burden all week, is that fear would be completed by love. And that those of you would learn to fear God and receive his love for your salvation, and that those of you who do fear God would abide in love, the Father's love for you, his grace and his mercy towards you. James 2 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. It is the heart of the Father to love It is the heart of the Father to forgive. So I'm going to pray, and I'm I'm going to pray a a prayer over you. I want you to go ahead and close your eyes. I want you to receive something from the Lord this morning. As we sing, It's just the burden of my heart that you would walk in and abide in the love of God. Jesus paid for your sins so you don't have to. That's the whole point. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, make us a people, Lord, who have a fear that's completed in love. God, I pray for every person in this room who is a true follower of Jesus and they're so burdened, God. So upset with themselves. They feel so guilty all the time. So ashamed, Lord. I pray.
pray, Lord, that they would receive a fresh and anew, a touch of your love this morning. That they would know the Father's love. That their sins have been dealt with on the cross. And that now all they know is grace. Would you release them from the burden of the day of punishment? Give them the freedom of walking in your love. And I pray, Lord, for every person, Lord, who walked in here apart from you, that they would rightly fear you and be afraid of the consequence of their sin. And that that fear would drive them, Lord, now to receive your love and what you've done for us on the cross. Would you do now what a sermon cannot do? Would you do what a song cannot do by your spirit? Just make the love of God come alive in our hearts this morning. Do something supernatural now as we respond to you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand, and I want to ask you.